Welcome to the 61st episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helberg. My co-host Vicky is still traveling, but luckily today I get to talk with an old friend, marine ecologist and acclaimed author, Carl Safina. Carl, along with being an endowed professor at Stony Brook University, winner of the MacArthur Genius Fellowship and host of the PBS series Saving the Ocean, has written 10 books to date. These include the best-selling Song for the Blue Ocean and Beyond Words and several children's books, plus his latest, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. So Carl, we usually start by asking our guests about their first connection with the sea, but you started out raising pigeons, although I think there was also some fishing involved. So talk about where you grew up and how you first connected with the wild, including the, uh, the salty wild. Yes, well, I grew up in a coastal town called Brooklyn, New York, which very few people think is a coastal town, but you're never more than a couple of miles from salt water in Brooklyn. And um, as far as the wild, we had the Bronx Zoo, we had the Coney Island Aquarium, and we had the American Museum of Natural History. Those were really incredible windows on a much, much wider world, as totally artificial as they were. Although the live animals were not artificial, they were very authentic uh, in their in their captivity. That's a whole other topic that never occurred to me when I was five years old. My uncles and my father would occasionally take me fishing or we would go crabbing. And all of that started very young. I think I, I, think I was three years old when I caught my first fish while I was um, seated on the railing of a bridge with my mother's arms around me so I wouldn't fall off the bridge <laughs> into the water place called Cross Bay Boulevard in Brooklyn. Huh, I think Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn is where I first went fishing and caught a well, conger eel. That was the water we were wetting our lines in was Sheepshead Bay. Nowadays, that's directly, well, that is the, is the route to the Jamaica Bay National Wildlife Refuge. And uh, still actually a surprisingly nice and surprisingly wildlife rich area within New York City. So that's where I grew up. I, I started raising homing pigeons when I was seven, uh, but by then I had had several years of experience catching fish and crabs. And uh, I think you mentioned eels. We, I, I, I can still see in my mind's eye the excitement of seeing a huge eel swimming at the surface while we were crabbing at night in the dark coming into the halo of the bridge lights and my uncle getting very excited. I think this is probably why I remember it because his excitement was so contagious, very excited to get the, get that eel, get that eel and running, running over with the net. So um, that was part of the, did, did he get that eel? Well, he, he got some eels. I remember uh, because another thing I remember in my mind's eye, and this, this is a very vivid image for me is looking down at a live eel in the cooler in some water, watching the way that the gills and mouth were working as it was breathing. And, and I, I know that that's a very vivid memory from that extremely young age. When, like I said, I was about three years old or, or four or five years old or something like that. I know it's a memory because I know we don't have any photographs of that. You'd once said that you know, the first thing you paint on the child's nursery is, is animals. People, people's earliest memories seem to connect them with critters and, and wild animals. So 
You started with the marine animal and eel when you were three. You raised passenger pigeons. Did Homing pigeons. Passenger pigeons were extinct for a long time by then. <laughs> That's right. So you got to pigeons and then you went on to hawks. Was that right? Falcons? Yes. I also had a parakeet when I was a small child. Then uh, when I was an adolescent, over a few years, I acquired uh, a great horned owl and a couple of red-tailed hawks and a kestrel. Uh, yeah, I got into falconry is the, is the short of it, but that's what that means, training birds of prey. Your early connection with, with birds and fishing kind of came together. You went off to college and ended up studying seabirds. Uh, were you always uh, headed in that direction or how'd that come about? Yeah, well, you know, for me, a kind of a perplexing thing when I was in college was I, I get to college and I'm surprised at how many people either don't know what they want to major in or don't know what they're interested in. I always was very, very interested in nature and I wanted to go to some sort of college program that would, you know, further my interest and tool me up for being engaged with my interest in my working life, at least as far as I understood what that would mean. So I, I got a bachelor's degree in environmental science, and then I went to graduate school where I got a master's and a PhD in ecology. And, and where was that? That was at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. That was where I studied seabirds, and I continued to study seabirds for a few years after I got my PhD. I also, while I was studying seabirds and also continuing to do a lot of fishing, I could see that the fishing was generally getting worse every year and that the ocean was being depleted. And uh, a, a, kind of, uh, a kind of ironic thing about the way my life was going at that time was that I wanted real adventure. And I thought that if I ever went to get a PhD, I would want to make sure that I did my research in some extremely far-flung place like New Guinea or at least in the middle of the Amazon. But I wound up doing it in the coastal waters of Long Island and in the, uh, in the turn and skimmer colonies that, uh, where they were nesting on the, uh, on the barrier beaches of Long Island, which is basically where I grew up and where I had been going since I was five years old. And I was kind of bummed out and I felt stuck but the um, tremendous silver lining of that, which turned out to be not just a silver lining, but the life-altering advantage of that was that most people, when they are getting a higher education and becoming educated people, they've grown up in a place, they've gone away to college in another place, they've gone away to graduate school in another place, maybe then they do a postdoc in another place, then they get a job somewhere else. And by the time they have all of their intellectual toolkit in place they they've lost their sense of place they don't have a home they don't know where home is they haven't been home in uh, you know 20 years or something i was in the same place and by the time i was 30 i had a 25 year long memory of what it was like and how it had changed and what i could see is that the fish were getting less and less and less every year and this inspired me to begin to uh, conceive of how to work on ocean conservation, especially fisheries 
policy reform, uh, no other person in any of the major environmental groups, environmental groups was doing that at all because they didn't know that the fish populations were in broad decline due to overfishing in the mid to late 1980s. And, so, um, so you were experiencing what later was called shifting baselines. You'd been in the waters well, they, of Long Island long enough to see that decline. The ironic uh, and frustrating thing is that I used to call it my baseline and the change in the baseline. And uh, I thought I should write something about this, but I was a little too busy writing my first book. And then Daniel Pauly came out with his thing, Shifting Baselines. And now everybody quotes that and knows him from that. But uh, Oh, yeah. Was, Ch- changing baseline sounds much better. <laughs> that was that was an idea that that I I had, you know, it was original idea for me, but I didn't I didn't um, do what it takes to get credit for an idea, which is to really put it out there for people. So uh, so were you shifting from like a science track to an advocacy track or what what did you do to uh, start? Yes, I, I totally did. I totally shifted from a science track to an advocacy track that happened in several ways. That was a whole long process. Anyway, I proposed a, uh, a listing uh, for the bluefin tuna that would have banned their export because it was the, uh, the foreign market in Japan that was mostly consuming so- them, soaking up these fish from all around the world. And that got me into a whole different level of advocacy with fisheries. And then we worked on the Sustainable Fisheries Act. That was a four-year campaign in the mid-90s with some wonderful colleagues from the Center for Marine Conservation, as it was called back then, and uh, uh, what is now called Wild Oceans, which was the National Coalition for Marine Conservation, a small group of mostly mostly recreational fishermen, but led by a very good guy, and uh, some colleagues from the World Wildlife Fund and uh, Natural Resources Defense Council. So we, we managed to really overhaul some of the key provisions in the law that governs fishing in the United States, and, you know, I'm the first person to scream depleted in a crowded theater, as my as I often joke, but I'm, I'm not all negative and all doom and gloom. I, you know, I can see that a lot of that work has has resulted in re- recoveries, substantial recoveries and reversals of the declines of many of the fish that live within uh, United States waters for their whole lives. The ones that migrate out, they get whacked during their migrations and there's still big problems with that but you know i can see that instead of everything being bad across all fronts as it was 30 years ago a lot of things are better it's definitely a mix and um, you know some of that is very very good right the, the reason i'm more frustrated than depressed is because we know what the solutions are it's finding the uh finding the political will to enact them with U.S. fisheries and efforts like uh, yours in the past um, in the 1990s and 2006 reform of the Fisheries Act. Things have turned around somewhat in the U.S. There, we're getting closer to sustainable fisheries. You then, uh, you were traveling a lot and eventually, I guess, uh, Song for the Blue Ocean became your first book. Am I right? Yeah, that was my first book. I started that book with the well I started the travels and the interviews before I knew what the book was going to be but with the idea that maybe someday I would write a book I started the travels and the interviews when I was looking into the bluefin tuna situation 
And I was hearing from a lot of commercial fishermen that there are plenty of tuna, there is no problem. And that was a total contradiction of the scientific data. So I wanted to see firsthand why they said that. I wanted to hear it from them. I wanted to go out on their boats. And the whole time I was taking a lot of notes and recording a lot of my conversations with the idea that maybe someday I would write a book, but I didn't have an outline of the book in my head until um, after I had done all of that. And then, and then uh, I outlined a kind of a kind of a different book than I was originally thinking. And that became song for the blue ocean and those travels and those interviews became the first third of that book. And then I went to a lot of other places. And in those days, I had not been out of the country that much. Um, and that just working on that book was a huge process of perspective widening oh, and further understanding and just uh, maturation in general. So, yeah. And then, you know, then I continued to write mostly about the ocean. And when, when did Song for the Blue Ocean come out? Because it, it was a kind of classic opus to both the ocean and uh, sort of Carl Safina meets every fish in the same ocean. It came out in the beginning of 1998. And definitely a, a turning point. I, I want to just read a list of your books, Song for the Blue Ocean, Voyage of the Turtle, Eye of the Albatross, The View from Lazy Point, A Sea of Flames, Becoming Wild, Beyond Words, and and your book for young readers, of course, The Great Whale Rescue. You've got one, Beyond Words, What Elephants and Whales Think and Feel, and Beyond Words, What Wolves and Dogs Think and Feel. And, and personally, I think having been the preferred human for two of them, that you, you'd be remiss not to write a book, Beyond Words, What Cats Large and Small Think and Feel. I, you know, <laughs> I agree with you. I, I had cats when I was less than 10 years old. I, I, I say that because we moved when I was 10 and then we never had a cat after that. But we've uh, we've always been a little too involved with birds to have cats around. So um, I don't ha I don't have too much experience with cats. And, you know, they're far less social than dogs are. They they cats have never had that much to say to me. They have that sort of diffidence that is in some ways very, very attractive and appealing they, they were never domesticated. They chose us and, you know, we're okay. We're staff. Yeah, that's basically true. They are essentially still their wild type to, to a vastly greater degree than dogs are. Although, let me hasten to emphasize that dogs remain much more their wild type than we think they are. Because if you watch wild wolves, what you see is that they act toward one another a lot like dogs act toward humans. So we basically just got them to jump track a little bit and still do the same thing. Your graduate study came around when you wrote Eye of the Albatross. You personalize seabirds for a lot of people. For the span of the first three books, I my concept of what I was writing about was how the oceans were changing and what those changes meant for the creatures and the people of the sea. The first book I thought could potentially create a lot of change in ocean policy. The, the next two books, 
I was much more interested, based on the response to the first book, I was much more interested in just opening windows and, and vistas on the ocean and using a couple of the big migratory ocean animals to, um, to hitchhike on because they would get me around to all of the issues I wanted to touch on and, you know, show how it affects those creatures and, and uh, people of the coast and people of the ocean. But then I felt like I was a little bit in danger of writing the same book again with a different main creature. So I started with a book called The View from Lazy Point. I started to pivot around to what my deeper and earliest interests really were, which were what, what do animals do and why do they do it? and conservation issues broadly, you know, and generally. My focus on the ocean for those years when I focused exclusively on the ocean in my work, that was not because that was my only interest. It was because the ocean was uh, untapped uh, policy territory for the environmental groups and the conservation movement. Um, it needed a lot of attention. It needed a lot of reform and it needed a lot of public awareness. And I was in a good position to help with that. But once I felt like that was accomplished and, uh, you know, I didn't want to keep revisiting the same. Well, issue. not, yes, not entirely accomplished. I mean, I, I talk about our blue bead in terms of, you know, the only resource in the ocean not fully exploited is good storytelling. When I say accomplished, let me let me say I don't mean that the work was done at all. What I what I kind of mean is that in the earlier days, everyone working on the issue could sleep in my house because there were only like five other people. And every time an article about the ocean came out, we put it on the bulletin board at work. And then I did not only did I not know everybody, but I didn't even know all the groups that were working on ocean issues. And every day there's an overwhelming amount of stuff you could read that comes out. Now, is the work accomplished? Are the problems fixed? No, very, very far from it. In a lot of ways, for most of the world, the problems are worse. And there are new problems that we didn't really know about in the 90s when I when I finished my first book the the warming of the ocean was underappreciated the acidification of the ocean was unknown the overfishing in other countries was not as bad as it is now in some of those places it was much worse in the United States than it is now it's improved a lot in the US as we talked about earlier so that's what I mean you know I felt like it wasn't up to me anymore to talk about the ocean there were there were plenty carry the salty people. torch right there's yeah, there's yeah, a you know, rising wave of you were of you were writing engagement you were, you were writing books you you were on marketplace on npr you were you were doing lots of stuff you know so uh i felt like i could uh relax that focus a bit it didn't uh you know my sen my own sense of my self-importance was a little bit less let's put it that way <laughs> A lot of what your recent books have been on, not just the state of wildlife, but reporting on how animals and others communicate, how they have cultures. Do we need to expand human empathy in order to, uh, to really address uh, all the environmental challenges we're facing now? 
Yeah, I think we do. I think we do because we think of all the living things in the world as things. And, um, and what I'm, you know, what I'm trying to do now with my books is to talk about who are we here with on this planet, set more perspective about that. And uh, I think the frontier in talking about other species is um, for what's called the higher vertebrates, for, for lack of better words, you know, like to a certain extent, fish and definitely birds and mammals. There's a lot of individuality in, implying from one to another. They they do different things. They, some of them have important social relationships. They're acutely aware of where they are and who they are with and things like that. And right. uh, they have their own personalities. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of that information is relatively new. And I think it's crucial for people to understand that beyond words. That book is about what other animals think and feel. And, uh, you know, you could say, well, you don't know what they think. Uh, to a certain extent, that's true. But you, I don't know what you think either, you know, and vice versa. There's so much new neurobiology. There's, there's so much that, uh, new animal behavior research. There's a lot you can say about decisions that animals make and uh, what it appears they are thinking and how we are neurologically equipped to have many of the same emotions. But one thing I didn't get into too much in that book, although there's a fair amount in there, is what do young animals need to learn from their parents and their elders in their social group? In, in a way, it's back to a kind of a silly debate over nature versus nurture. Some people say that, you know, we're born with a blank slate. We have to learn absolutely everything. And this is true for all animals. And other, or some people say it's only true for humans and all other animals don't learn anything. It's all instinct. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, we're born with the ability to learn certain things and then we have to learn it. Like we're born with the ability to learn a human type language, but we are not born with a human language. We have to learn a human language and it could be anything. That's the culture part. The culture part is what you learn depends on what culture you're in. And this is true, not just for humans. There's a lot of that with a lot of other animals who need to learn the answer to the question, how do we live here where we happen to live? That's what culture answers for humans. Humans are, are by far the most culturally complex animals, but the basis of why culture exists and what it does is actually true for many species. I think that's pretty interesting. And I think it's, um, well, it is pretty new scientifically. So I wanted to write about that at book length. It was an easy sell for me at the time because I had a long-standing relationship with a particular editor at a particular publisher, and he thought it was a really interesting idea. That's how that came about. And it is whales having regional accents or mama otters teaching their kids to have specific food preferences. All, all of that's in your book. What's, what's your process? Do you start writing when you're in the field? Do you start writing after your, all your field notes are together? Do you have a time of day you prefer to write? Uh, yes, yes, yes. I, my, my basic process is that um, the book is built around the narrative. So the field narrative comes first. Usually the field trips come first. The narrative comes home with me. I write up the narrative. Often the narrative feels, just from the field notes, feels a little thin. So then I delve into, well, what do we know about this topic and that topic? And what, what is known about 
what that person is telling me. So that results in really a lot of looking things up and getting into the scientific literature a lot. The, the most valuable thing to me about having a university affiliation is the ability to just go online and get into the science literature, which I do really, really extensively at times. And then I, I either integrate that directly into the field narrative, or in the book I'm finishing now, I built those two things very separately and then integrated them. But the, the, the narrative out of the real world, what I see, what I do, what people are telling me, who I'm talking to, where we're going, all of that comes first and then gets filled in with uh, the deeper perspective of what, what else we know about this topic or, or what was thought about this topic or you know, where, it's, where the field might be headed at this time. I like to write whenever I can, but the best times for me are in the morning. If I, if I can get to it early, I love working early. We happen to have some chores early that usually take a little while, just taking care of our chickens and our dogs and filling the bird feeders and stuff like that. Sometimes taking the dogs for a walk on the beach takes a while. So I often don't get to writing as early as I kind of, kind of really love to do. I wrote my first story when I was 12 years old on a, on a non-electric typewriter. Yep. And then I wrote my, um, my, all my undergraduate papers and stuff like that on an electric typewriter. I am a horrible, horrible typist. The only D I ever got in any class was in typing. And the, and the class th whose skill I use the most is the class I got that D in. So it's pretty funny. But if it wasn't for the easy ability to correct mistakes that the computer gives you and the insanely easy ability to, you know, edit things thousands I, of times, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. The computer I, was a big, big game changer. I think me. the greatest technological innovation of my lifetime was cut and paste on the computer. I remember the moment when somebody showed me that you could do that. And I just went, wow. Now, this, of course, dates us tremendously, but it's fun to remember those times. So we're in this cascading series of crisis around extinction and climate and war and epidemics. We kind of come out of it in a different uh, way. What's, what's your thinking of the state of our blue world right now? And what's your plans for your next steps in it? I think, like you said, we know the solutions to every problem we have. The problem is that the solutions are not being applied and it's not for lack of information, it's for lack of understanding. There are a few reasons for that lack of understanding and outright denial and the way that we value the world. So it's not because we don't know what could be done. And I think, I think that you, know, you and I who are among the the very lucky people with platforms to, to speak to audiences of different sizes, I, I think our, our main work and responsibility is to spread this empathy for the rest of the world and spread understanding of the plight of people, the plight of other living things. What is at stake for the future if we 
really begin to unweave the stability of the life supporting systems of this planet, which, you know, we're starting to see some of these things begin to bite in the form of these enormous and very frequent wildfires, uh, the intensifying and much more destructive storms. All of this relates to the warming. We have a lot of good information reports about the declines of species. We've since since we were in high school, there are three billion fewer birds in North America, and that's because we take where they live and we make it impossible for them to live there. So we know all these things. When I say we, I mean the information is there. Many people don't know it and are not exposed to the information or are not taught to care about these things. And I think that that's our role. And I, I think that's, well, that's, you know, you asked me, so that's what I'm committed to doing. Okay, great. And if people want to know more, you have the Safina Center, how do people get in touch? Safinacenter.org is the uh, site for my not-for-profit group and my personal website, which uh, is mostly about my books and other writing is carlsafina.org. So safinacenter.org about the wider work that we do and carlsafina.org about me a little bit more narrowly. Awesome. Well, thank you, Carl, for joining us today on Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. David, it's a rare pleasure when I get to see and speak with you, and I have a lot of respect and admiration for all the work you have done and continue to do. Equalmente. Thanks, Carl. Thank you so much. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.